Uh, you'll want to take it off so it's not jingling all over the place. Sorry, I don't mean to keep telling you, but your shirt is unbuttoned on the top. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> Welcome to Podcast with Your Mom. Can you include that in? <laughs> Folks, welcome to NSFP. Today with us, we have Georgia Vesma as a host and Emily Burns, who is a English and American studies major studying the Chartist movement. Emily, Hello. would you tell us about yourself? How did you get involved with oh academics? Uh, no, I kind of fell into it by accident. It's kind of like... I don't, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, so I, uh, I did uh, my master's in Newcastle. I'm from Newcastle. And uh, I did a module and... Uh, they didn't really talk, uh, well, it was kind of like, I really liked literature and I've always have, but there was like a certain aspect of it that I didn't like so much. And then one day I was running and I came across this sign that talked about chartism in like, in You this, saw a sign? Like literally, yeah, I know how weird it sounds, but yeah, I, I came across a sign and it was like, oh, there was a Chartist movement in this place. And I was just like, I didn't know the Chartist movement was in Newcastle. I never knew about that. I thought it was Manchester and London. So I was just kind of like, oh, right. So I kind of looked a little bit more into it. And then I found this crazy, really cheeky, awful newspaper, which had Porsche columns and fiction and all the rest of that kind of crap. And I was like, yeah, I want to I wanna learn a bit more about these guys. So that's what happened, yeah. Was this newspaper the Northern Liberator? Yes, yes, it was that one. <laughs> the infamous Northern Liberator. Yeah, yeah, the cheeky Northern Liberator. That's actually what um, another scholar calls them. So they've kind of got a reputation now for being a bit cheeky. And I kind of admire that because I think I'm the same. <laughs> yeah, you definitely are the same. Oh. I think uh, for listeners at home, you may not have already gathered this, but... Althea and Emily are quite good friends. Well, she's, no, my, slacky, she's my slacking buddy. <laughs> what? We hate each other. What are you talking about? <laughs> We're arch enemies. <laughs> well, yeah, when one of us is in study mode and the other one wants to talk, we are. I mean, it's like, shut up. But, I mean, sometimes we're both, we can both study together peacefully, but usually it's like one person is chatty and the other person is annoyed, but we yeah. still try. We spend too much time together. <laughs> That's our problem. <laughs> so tell us a bit about your research. Well, I am um, looking at the Northern Liberator, not just Northern Liberator, I'm looking at three Chartist journals. One that's in the Northeast, one that's in the Northwest, and one that's national. And I'm comparing like uh, three different regions in the north of England to see how like um, views on char the Chartist movement are kind of shared or if they're not shared. But it's kind of like a regional sort of perspective on the Chartist movement. So for our listeners, what is the Chartist movement? Oh, uh, so it was like the first, I'm going to say the first, I'm going to be brave and say it. It was the first ever working class movement. No, it wasn't in England. <laughs> <laughs> Your, your bravery didn't even last to the end of your sentence. <laughs> That's going to be this whole interview. I'll be saying something and go, no, it wasn't. <laughs> it's, it's like there's a fourth person here today. It's okay, it's Mike isn't here. Your supervisor's not here. Just just pretend he's not here and just go brass the entire way. Oh, so, man. Chartism. 
Yeah, uh, so yeah, it kicked off in the early 19th century and they were campaigning for um, all working class men to have the vote. So it was basically like to extend the vote to the people, as they like to be called. And it was never successful. It never, like, yeah, they were never successful in the movie. Did so working was, class men never get the vote? Emily? They did. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, only it was 1914. No, 18. <laughs> this is so bad that I don't know this. <laughs> well, luckily you're not a historian. Let's uh, Google this. <laughs> yeah, okay. Either way, they didn't yeah. get it for about 60 years. Yeah, yeah, it didn't come after. It came in the 20th century. So, yeah. It did get extended, though, I think, in the 19th. I don't know. I'm talking bull crap. We don't <laughs> swear on this TV show. <laughs> TV show. Radio show, even. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, so that's what it is. I'm making. I'm not even making this sound very good, am I? It's okay. Georgia will fix it, and you'll sound much better. <laughs> that's true. You'll have to work miracles. <laughs> she can. Yeah. At the end of this, you are going to sound like a regular genius. This oh, is my promise my to you. <laughs> anyway, because you do know what you're talking about as well. I've talked to you about this before, and you do know your yeah. subject. Usually, I don't have a speaker this close to my face yeah, so that usually true. helps <laughs> well that's not true I've seen you on the phone at work and there's normally a microphone right by your face I, I know, know but I never noticed that one smaller <laughs> you tell your the people you're fundraising at about your research oh I do actually yeah yeah. I don't know yeah <laughs> too much <laughs> I actually wanted to ask just a little bit more about your um, work on the Northern Liberator and just you mentioned that there's sort of poetry and fiction mm. is that also present in the other journals that you're looking at yes but i haven't looked at them yet i'm still early stages so at the minute i'm like focusing all on the northern liberator and because uh, i am having to read through each journal one at a time and like so the northern liberator is 1837 to 1841 and the uh, Northern Star is 1838 to 1852. Mm-hmm. And then the Western Vindicator, that's like a little small one, like Northern Liberator. So that's 1839 to 1841, I think. So it's kind of like, um, it's like four years between the smaller ones. And then the big one is a good 10 years. So you can see how, how tedious that might be reading through every single uh, issue of them. <laughs> yeah, but so, it's so fu- it's such a weird newspaper that you're always like... No, 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 not weird. <laughs> not weird. Just crazy. Yes. Like, okay. <laughs> okay, you're right. That's better. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So tell about the political pilgrim's progress. I think our listeners would like to hear about... Oh, no, you like to hear about this. Okay, you, I like, you to like this more than I, I did. I sat next to you as you analysed it to me all the first semester. So yeah. you tell everyone else what so I So the political pilgrim's progress is sort of a radical Geordie uh, adaption of uh, John Bunyan's The Pilgrim's Progress, which is, if you're not familiar with it, most people are, but if you're not familiar with it, it's a Christian allegory. Quite religious. And yeah. not really funny. Yeah, and then the Northern Liberator, they just do what they do best. They take something that is, you know... Sacred. Sacred, and they just tear it to shreds and just completely transform it into this, like, radical, political sort of, like, hoo-ha. So, like, for example, the main character in John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress is called Christian, 
And the Northern Liberates version, the main character is called Radical. <laughs> <laughs> you can imagine how different Radical is to Christian. <laughs> he has his burden of taxes as he goes to the city of reform. I know that's right. Um, yeah, yeah. And he tackles the political Apollyon with his paper money. <laughs> his paper money. Because the the main thing that they were upset about in the political pilgrim's progress was the switch from the gold standard to paper money. Because they hated, yeah, they hated paper money. Because then you just have paper, which is worthless. Yeah. So it has this one cartoon of the devil holding a cart of paper money and Emma is showing this to me. I'm like, why does the devil like paper money so much? Won't it burn in hell? And yeah. I mean, so- that's a good point. I'm sure if um, the editor, Robert Blake, if he was sat here today, you could tell him, you could tell you himself, yeah. But I, I have no idea. <laughs> um, yeah, but... Gosh, the Castle of Despair is the workhouse, right? Yes, that's right. So, uh, as you know, in the Pilgrim's Progress, they've got the Castle of Despair. Yes. Which is, is it the giant Doubting Castle? Yeah, right? the yeah, da- yeah. Doubting Castle. So and they'll like, like beat so them with rods and stuff. Yeah, so basically Christian's on a, um, he's on a journey to kind of, it's pretty much heaven. Right? Yeah. He's on a journey to heaven. And on his journey, he comes across ab- obstacles. And there's one, there's, you know, it's Castle, Doubting Castle, where the giants live. Yeah. But in this radical version that the Northern Libero made, it's like um, radicals on this journey to the city of reform from the city of plunder, and he comes across a uh, castle of despair, which is a workhouse, and that's owned by um, the despots, who uh, you know they're just like the um, upper class men with their big hats on, whipping the uh, working class into shape, which is great fun to uh, read. <laughs> so how did he get out? I don't remember. I know, Pil- I mean Christian found. A key. What, was it hope that got him out of the castle? What got Radical out oh, of the workhouse? Yeah, it, um, so it was hopeful because he was doubting. Was he was kind of like, well, yeah, uh, Christian was thinking yeah, yeah, of yeah. making away with himself. Yeah, and yeah, then and then hopeful, and then hopeful was like, no, was like, man, no. don't do that. Yeah, yeah, so, he's like trusting um, yourself, man. <laughs> that is not what. Okay, I'm sorry. John Bunyan would never have told anyone to trust in themselves. That's like completely anti. Just do it, dude. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so in, in this Northern Liberator version, uh, Radical and his family, so his, his uh, wife and children, their heads are shaved off and everything. And they're thrown, <laughs> like, they're thrown into like this... Uh, why did you laugh? This because is really you said their head was shaved off and I'm thinking of some clipper doing a bit of execution instead of their hair. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. So yeah, as I was saying, their heads are uh, shaved and they're thrown into the cell and Radical's thrown into the cell and then... Um, so they, they kind of, uh, they can hear each other still and they plot and then they manage to escape. Using moral force or violence? <laughs> Using moral force only, but she a cowardly because they're just running away. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> so they run away. Yeah, All they right. do, they do, they run away. And then, uh, yeah, then they, oh, then they come across the political Apollyon, which um, is, so in the, in the uh, religious version, in John Bunyan's version, it's just Apollyon. Who um, is like yeah? He's like the main villain, isn't he? He's like the main. Yeah, I think he's like the devil or something, and yeah. he almost kills Christian. Oh yeah! But then Christian used the shield of faith. That's right. And then an angel comes and heals him from all the darts. So what happens to Pilgrim? I mean, radical. radical. So in yeah. the in the uh, in the um, Northern Liberators version, radical. He um, God, if I can remember, yeah, I can. So Radical and his son, uh, they at first, they attempt to use moral force, but then they can't use moral force, so they use their physical force, and uh, Radical has a full-on battle with a political Apollyon, 
And then, um, you know, his son, his son gets his knife out. Oh, yeah. You know, he was given to him by his father. Oh, yeah. That's right. And then he goes around and kills um, the political Apollyon's horse, which is called Tax. (laughs) 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 And then he just, like, you know, like, kills the crap out of it with this dagger. (laughs) And then um, they manage to get away. But basically, children, this is a story about whether to use physical and moral force when overthrowing the government. And the Northern Liberator loved the idea of physical force when you have to. Quarter of the season. (laughs) (laughs) That was amazing to to hear that retelling. So, I mean, I had a plan to ask follow-up questions about sort of the other types of poetry and uh, sort of fiction that you find in this paper. Okay. What's it? What's it like? Is it funny? Is it uh, well, serious? Some of it. So some of it is. I think the thing is with the Northern Liberate, which is different from most other Chartist newspapers, is they uh, are very good at using satire. <laughs> which uh, so there's not just that. There's another one called the Political Tale of the Tub. Which oh, I is, haven't heard the Tale of the Tub. Yeah, no, I haven't read that yet. Oh, okay. But I'm very eager to. I'm looking forward to that. So that's a satire of Jonathan Swift's Tale of the Tub. I've never read that either. Yeah, no, I haven't, but I'm excited. (laughs) (laughs) So so they they do satire. um, They do... um, So they have a poetry column, which is a weekly thing, but that's not written by the the, uh, writers of Northern Liberator. That's wrote by um, just, like, locals. By readers. Yeah, that's right. Just, like, uh, readers who um, who sent their poetry in and they had to looks through them all and chooses his favourite and that gets put up there so it's like two or three but that's in mo- so all the newspapers do that there's like always like a poetry column um but um so what's quite good about the northern liberator is is that you know it's it's by the people in the north east which is really interesting because it no, like people don't generally put their name on the end of the poem they would just be like oh by a working class man or like you know by um miner's wife and stuff like that and it's just like it's quite it's like sort of giving them a voice when they had no political representation like in that period so it's like you know it's it's dead interesting so and then they do they have like ongoing fictions that go on a bit <laughs> a bit quite a long serializations and some of them some of them I have got to admit some of them are terrible like some of them you read and you're just like oh my word so Emily every week on the podcast we ask our guests why if do you they call have... me Emily it's so weird I'm just like what sorry <laughs> okay, it's because you're in guess. trouble <laughs> yeah I'm like Jesus so, Christ M last thank you our M um, <laughs> Every week on the podcast, we ask our guests if they have something funny to share with us from okay. their research. And I've been hearing a lot about this Marcus pamphlet, mm. so I'd love to hear about it. Okay, so basically, there was this conspiracy going around in the early 19th century, right, about this pamphlet that just appeared in print and nobody knew, like, where it came from or anything like this. And the the uh, writer of the pamphlet was just called Marcus, and that was all we knew about it. Now, the thing is... Basically, let me give you a bit of information. At the time, there was this sort of debate in the Houses of Commons going on that, uh, you know, it's just like this idea that, because the new poor law bill just got put in. So it's this idea that, you know, the working class uh, will go into like uh, a workhouse if if like need be, you know, if it gets uh, to that situation. I'm rambling a bit, but yeah. And basically, um, this Marcus pamphlet came out and it, it 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 was this they had this view like 
So it basically said this idea that the working classes should, uh, the, the children of the working classes, the babies, they should be fed to the um, other working classes who were starving to death and that would cure poverty. <laughs> this this isn't a modest proposal. No. Yeah, well, no, no, no. L- l- right. So basically, at first, people were like, what? This is terrible. Well, it had the Who carbonic acid painless extinction and the woodcuts to prove it. So they had like this they drawing of this. They had all this evidence. This they machine. Went, like this pamphlet <laughs> was so long. It was, yeah. It's like this machine for like gassing yeah, the, every they, third they infant looked of into the working class. Detail. And like, oh, they had line drawings as proof of this machine <laughs> and so so basically the northern liberator were like this is disgusting whoever did this is absolutely this is just disgusting and we know exactly who did this i'm telling you now it was the whigs and the tories from the houses of commons working classes they want to feed your children to stop poverty <laughs> and basically right they give it so much attention and scholars have come out and said actually I think the Northern Liberator wrote the pamphlet to make it look like the Tories and the Whigs wrote it, so the working classes would just be put off them like altogether. Oh my God! It's early nineteenth century fake news. Fake news, <laughs> I know, right? Yeah. So, who invented the fake news? The Northern Liberator. <laughs> oh my God! It's exactly the same as seeing something like that shared by your aunt on Facebook. And exactly, like, right? Oh, exactly. Oh no, 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 no! No one is eating babies. I promise. <laughs> but it's too late. Someone has already told them that political party A or B advocates for the eating of babies. Oh, my word. Yeah, um, that is hilarious. The thing that got me was that they were using illustrations as proof. Oh, yeah. yeah, they actually... There was, so there's this one illustration of... Um, it's like the Houses of Commons in the background and all your main political representations standing like around this cradle with a baby inside and this doctor being at the front about to put it like like with an injection. And it's just kind of like, oh my God. And it's like, the title's like, Marcus uh, Revealed. (laughs) (laughs) I wonder who drew that? Yes, it was the Northern Liberator. (laughs) So is is it like an illustrated newspaper does it did it have uh, pictures it doesn't generally usually it doesn't but the one or two when they really want to get that point across they will like <laughs> they will go to a little illustration and um, the pol- the political pilgrims progress there was illustrations to follow that yeah. and then they uh, they republished it a couple of years later with the illustrations alongside but it's quite normal it's quite typical of a newspaper like if you wanted to do serialization you'd have illustrations there to catch your reader's eye so yes yes some illustrations and what do you think is sort of the importance of uh, fiction in these kind of early working class movements? Do you think that it mattered? Uh, well, yeah, like, I think it's because you've got to consider this, like, so this was a period where it was illegal to have meetings along the working classes. It was illegal to meet up anywhere to discuss politics. It was, you know, um the newspapers were highly censored and uh, the working classes, they had no political representation. They couldn't vote. So um, I think in that period, it was important for them to turn to fiction because they could use fiction to get their ideas across. Because yeah. at the end of the day, it's not real if it's fiction. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like it kind of they did um, heavily rely on it for that uh, um 
yeah to get that point across but uh you know it's it's funny because in chartist movement a lot of uh, academics are in this history field rather than the literature field so uh and like so it has like the literary field in the chartist movement has started to become more like um heavily like heavily reliant in the 80s and since it's just started to sort of kick off a bit but hopefully yeah it's like yeah it's quite good yeah I think there's also an issue of kind of accessibility as well, isn't there, with an audience that are maybe uh, only a certain percentage of the audience is literate. Oh, this was the best thing about it, Georgia. This is the best thing about it. So newspapers weren't read like they are today, you know, where you just read it yeah. in your head. This was a period where people couldn't afford to buy a newspaper. People, most people couldn't read the newspaper. So you'd have that one, you know, jaw in your village it would buy the newspaper and literally the whole village would come around to their house and they'd read the newspaper out loud to everyone. Because it was a weekly. Yeah, it was It was a weekly. But um, I think it's a little bit like, do you know when TVs first came out? And nobody had a TV. But, you know, your, your neighbour, like, five blocks down did and used to go around their house to watch the TV, you know, Sky TV or something like yeah. that. Not before TV, but yeah, somewhere around there. Do you know what I yeah. mean? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Some of your straighteners, hair straighteners. Well, I think that <laughs> definitely says something then about the importance of fiction, doesn't it? Because it can like speak to a broad audience in terms of like radicalizing uh, a community, which I guess was kind of yeah, their objective. Right. Like fiction was actually a really great way to reach people of different ages. Well, yeah, I guess it did, and, and it sort of it played to that sort of imaginary. I guess you know, like. If it's not happening right now, you know, through the fiction, you can imagine a time where the working classes have political representation or you can imagine like different forms of government and like what Mm. form of government would work. So, you know, uh, the fiction, it was really empowering for that sort of uh, thing. Like it's sort of like today with anybody, like, you know, just here in the, we work in the Ellen Wilkinson building. Sometimes we'll sit we'll sit around, have dinner, and we'll discuss communism. And we'll sort of, amongst us, we'll sort of imagine different forms of communism and how, whether communism could come about. And I suppose it's kind of the same thing with literature back in the uh, 19th century. They use it to sort of imagine different states of government and mm. sort of analyse different points of view of it. That's amazing. Do Is there any indication in any of the newspapers about how the audience received this stuff. Did anyone ever write in? Yeah, they did, they did, and the editors hated it. (laughs) Oh, they hated it. But they wrote in all the time because they'd be like, you um, spelt this wrong on column five in (laughs) issue one. Uh, Will you please do something about this, please? And obviously the editor was like, look, Stop, stop going on about me grammar, please. Just listen to the points I have to say. You could tell this poor Ed was so frustrated. And he'd have to like reply to all these people because there was a correspondence po- column, oh, no. which is basically the equivalent of our Facebook. <laughs> and basically all these readers would write in complaining about the terrible grammar. It wasn't that bad. They've got better grammar than I have. But <laughs> like, yes, they'd all write in complaining about it and the editors would have to reply to every single one of them, apologising for their bad grammar <laughs> to a man <laughs> I love that they included letters that they didn't want to respond to I mean what a great act by a kind of a people's newspaper right well like, they replied to some I'm, I'm pretty sure that most of the letters never got in <laughs> yeah I'm pretty sure <laughs> have you found any evidence of people sort of responding directly to the content of the fiction or the poetry 
Oh, yeah, definitely when it first came out because... Um, so basically, they've got like a couple of articles or a couple of um, fictional writing which are a bit, you know, borderline. You shouldn't be able to say that, but you have. <laughs> and basically, you know, especially like with the Queen. So this is quite interesting. So in this period, you know, Queen Victoria first came on the throne and she was 18 years old. And then the Northern Liberator, they're like, okay, I, you know, it's fine. She's a woman. You know, that's not the problem here. It's the fact that you've got an 18-year-old on the throne, like... And we're all supposed to follow her orders. That doesn't make sense. And they're basically like, oh, better have been a woman, though, than a man, because if it was a man, he'd be going off um, doing inappropriate things, and then the <laughs> the whole country would be under his rule. But basically, like, there was a few readers who wrote in being like, you should never talk badly of the Queen. How dare you? How absolute dare you? But then they and, would make up, like, the secret characters of the Queen. Oh, they did, yeah. Like, she definitely... There's a woman of high state who definitely doesn't snore when she sleeps <laughs> yeah so yeah so a lot of the time they're in news so they they'll categorize it as news but it's not actually news it's kind of like it's fake news gossip yeah gossip like weekly butt. gossip that's why they put it on and it's basically like the, the queen's favorite dish so like how she has like you know she must start every day with her pancake or whatnot and they were like oh but this is highly highly you know quality news and we must talk about this so this is kind of like hello magazine or something well, it's kind of like celebrity the gossip. Of all the other newspapers who write absolute garbage about you know what the queen likes and they were like kind of being like look we don't give a hoot's ass like we're just gonna kind of like mock these other newspapers about it and then, so a lot of people can catch on with what they're actually doing, and these readers will like write in, being like, "Look, I'm really offended that you're insulting my queen," <laughs> and they're just kind of like, "I get that you're really offended and everything, but um, it wasn't me. It was the other writer who wrote that. I have nothing to do with it as editor. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> There's always this other writer as well who who writes all this controversial stuff." If the novel liberate, they can't get their hands on him, so it's great. <laughs> Probably Marcus. Yes. <laughs> um, your project just sounds amazing, and it's really interesting for me to kind of hear an update on how it's going when kind of uh, I haven't really had a chance to talk to you about how it's going recently. You say amazing, but you don't have to. <laughs> no, I I really mean it. I really mean it. It's really um, great to hear how it's developing and stuff. And it it actually sounds like a project that's got loads of potential for, yeah, for humour, for sort of, like, creativity and uh, sort of responding to fiction in new and exciting ways. It's really yeah. cool. So why don't you tell us about some of the... Because we know that you, like, you find your research... Really wonderful. Why don't you talk about some of the harder aspects of doing a PhD mm. here at UOM? Um, well, I don't know about here. Like, I suppose, I suppose uh, it's like for me, it's my first ever time living away from home. Uh, so, like, I'd say I miss my family, but I don't really. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I suppose, I suppose it's like you don't have that. Like, usually my mom comes to town and we check up on each other, and it's quite nice to have that like kind of foundation. So you can just like quickly fall back on it if you need it. But here you don't. I mean, you know what I'm talking about. You live away from home now. Yeah, it's, it's nice to. But I don't have that foundation to fall back on. I mean, they told me if I ever need them, that they will come. But that's a bit different. But yeah, I know what oh, you mean. Yeah. You know, like, yeah, it's good to go home. It's good to kind of 
recharge with your family. Yeah, it's quite nice. It's good nice, to know that yeah. they're there for you. Yeah, it's good. I mean, for I mean, it's a bailout if you need to bail out. <laughs> it's not the really, it's not the same though with the phone, is it? Like, I don't know, you FaceTime your parents a lot. Yeah, I FaceTime right. them almost every day. So you know, it, I, it is actually quite, it's not the same, but it's it's still good. No, but like, yeah. I phone, so I phone my mom, right? And my yeah. mom's like, what do you want? <laughs> <laughs> You're like, regular check up with your parents. Uh, oh, yeah. My, if I don't phone for three days, my mom's like, I'm so happy your life is so busy. I missed you. And so... I love this. We're like 23-year-old adults talking about <laughs> we need to phone home. <laughs> I also call my parents almost every day. Oh, okay. And I am an, an older adult. <laughs> you're not... Okay, you're, you're, you're acting like you're in the 55 and up bracket, Georgia. Please get back to reality. Uh, okay, fine. <laughs> <laughs> I still... Yeah, you make it sound like you're a grandma or something, Georgia. <laughs> I feel like a grandma when I'm... Uh, <laughs> when I'm with, uh, with a lot of 23-year-olds. Not oh. because of anything to do with you guys, but just because... Um, no, actually, I think I think it is something to do with us. I think that, by proxy, you feel more mature when you're around us. Yeah, but well, we act really immature. So it's more like the main 23-year-old that I hang around with is Anna. Yes. And she mercilessly picks on me for okay, being old. Anna is mean, <laughs> and she always talks about how old you are, but... I think Anna's really nice. But yeah, but she's not got Georgia. A, she's got a nice heart, but she's mean to me. <laughs> <laughs> um, which you know, luckily I can give as good as I get. I think all that's left to say is thank you so much for joining us. Oh no, thank you for having us. Like I know I'm a bit sleepy today. So. Well, thank you for it coming. Not come even across. though you were tired. Thank you for coming. This is me tired, Georgia. <laughs> I cannot imagine Believe what you would be like at full capacity. Um, but yeah, it was absolutely brilliant to hear more about your project. Thank you as always for your time. Thank you, Althea, for uh, your hosting. You're welcome. And... Don't tell your supervisor what you heard here today. What happens on the podcast stays on the podcast. (laughs) Not Safe for Publication is a new podcast about the lighter side of humanities research at the University of Manchester. If you're a humanities researcher who has something funny to share, please be in touch with us at nsfppodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter at nsfppodcast. Have an adequately happy existence.